joining us for, for the first time this morning. Uh, as you heard also mentioned, we're working our way through the book of Acts. We have been at it since last August. This is actually the final stretch. Uh, I believe we finish up at the end of May. So I think this week included, we've got five weeks left to go. Book of Acts is one of the most action-packed books in all of the Bible, if you've never read it. It's the, the incredible uh, story of a band of Christ followers acting as his witnesses, which is why we've entitled this series, Witnesses, spreading the gospel by land and sea to the farthest reaches of the known world, fulfilling the very promise of Jesus himself to build his church with the gates of hell powerless to stop it. As you've heard me say before, it's a story with shipwrecks and snake bites, magic and miracles. It's a, a Netflix content licensing executive's dream. The final few chapters of the book of Acts are, are really no different as we follow the adventures of the apostle Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea and ultimately all the way to Rome on trial for his very life at this point in the story, just like the Jesus he had come to know, love, and follow. And we'll see Paul's conversion story for a second time in the book of Acts this morning. Going back to last Sunday, and James alluded to this just a few moments ago, the, the danger is that we would treat the doctrine of the resurrection like a piece of wedding china, beautiful, maybe even valuable, yet only to be taken out of the proverbial china cabinet on special occasions like Easter Sunday. This morning, I think it's gonna be very evident, crystal clear, that the doctrine of the resurrection is not solely an Easter doctrine, that the doctrine of the resurrection has implications for everyday living, many of us know this to be true, as evidenced in both the words and the actions of the Apostle Paul in this morning's passage. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 21, We'll begin in verse 37. We've got a good bit of ground to cover this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles. Utilize it during our time this morning. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or the translation that you do own is difficult to track with, then please take um, that copy of the scriptures home with you. Let me pray for us and for me included in that. And we'll, we'll jump in and we'll get to work. Jesus, similar to the very thing I prayed last week during this point in the service, the very fact that we would say your name, begin a prayer with your name as a declaration that you're not dead. Rather, the tomb is empty. You have risen from the dead. You have conquered our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. You have ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. You, as the author of Hebrews, says so well, our, our great intercessor, our sympathetic high priest, you're seated on the throne of heaven and you live to make intercession for us as we journey on our own pilgrimage toward eternal rest in you. God, we're desperate for you this morning, for your power. Spirit of God, would you move mightily as I've prayed over and over again in this series, same Holy Spirit at work in the book of Acts. 2,000 years later, you're present with us, indwelling your people. You're in this space. We ask you to open our eyes to see that which you want us to see in your divinely inspired word. We ask that you would um, open our ears to hear the things that you want us to hear by your grace. We ask that you would open our hearts to receive it all. 
And that ultimately in it, you would get the glory and we would get the joy. God, I pray that you would give my weakened, feeble voice strength in these moments for the sake of expounding the beautiful, divinely inspired scriptures that sit in our possession and in our hands right now. Thank you that that we can open them without the danger of persecution yet again this morning. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I would have gone a little longer on this one, but with the the voice disappearing on me um, slowly and steadily, I'm going to give you the briefest of previously on Acts recaps that I could possibly give you. The, The Apostle Paul, where we are in the book of Acts right now, has just wrapped up the last of his three famous missionary journeys. You can go and look at the maps in the back of your Bible and, and see um, the, you know, the, the geography uh, that Paul conquered for the sake of the gospel there. He brings the final journey to a close in the city of Jerusalem. That's where we are this morning. And that, despite the fact that many of his friends begged him not to go to Jerusalem, fearing the worst. And their fears, as we'll see this morning, as we saw a couple weeks ago, were not without warrant. It's in Jerusalem that that Paul has just been rescued from an angry mob, having been accused of taking a Gentile into an area of the temple forbidden to Gentiles, an accusation without any sort of evidence or merit, but one that leads to Paul's arrest nonetheless. Picking up the story where we left off the week before Easter, Acts chapter 21, verse 37 tells us, and as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. This is a, the first of a, a few different points of focus in this morning's passage on the Apostle Paul's identity. We'll see uh, Luke come back to this on more than one occasion. Here, Paul is questioned regarding whether or not he's a well-known Egyptian freedom fighter who had a few years prior established a violent movement toward the Romans involving a group of people known as the assassins who were known for stabbing Roman supporters in public crowds, kind of crazy, the, the tribune questions whether or not Paul is the infamous leader of this violent group, having returned to Jerusalem to stir up trouble yet again. To which Paul says, no, I'm not that guy. I'm a Jew from Tarsus, the citizen of a well-known city with people who could affirm that truth if you were to go and ask. And then Paul requests permission to speak to the crowd, which opens the door for the second telling of Paul's conversion story in the book of Acts. We'll get another one, I believe, in chapter 26. But here, this time, from the lips of the apostle Paul himself, verse 40 tells us, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, verse one of chapter 22, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. He begins with the words, brothers and fathers, the very same words that Stephen began his speech with back in chapter seven, right before becoming the very first post-resurrection Christian martyr. We're meant to wonder here if the same fate awaits the apostle Paul that awaited Stephen as he addresses much of the same crowd in the very same city that Stephen had delivered his famous speech. We're also meant to see that the very man who once stood against Stephen now stands with Stephen. 
That's cool. A fellow brother in Christ. The gospel really is the power of God for salvation. Romans chapter one, turning persecutors of Jesus into proclaimers of the gospel. Verse two tells us, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, verse three, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, this Jesus and his followers to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul begins the telling of his conversion story by establishing his Jewish credentials, his conservative Jewish upbringing, his education at the feet of Gamaliel, the most prominent rabbi in Paul's day, his zeal for the law, his former persecution of Christians, whom he had considered apostate Jews. Paul would go on to write something similar in his letter to the church of Philippi. Uh, Philippians chapter three, verses four through six, Paul says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, Paul's saying, no one in this crowd, in this scene, in Acts chapters 21 and 22, have more Jewish street cred than me. He's, he's establishing some solidarity with this predominantly Jewish crowd, And yet, he says, coming back to Acts chapter 22, verse six, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now, those who were with me, saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Jesus declares his name to Saul and Saul comes face to face with the truth of the resurrection blinded by the the radiant light of the risen Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Jesus that we celebrated this past Sunday, on Easter Sunday, the risen Jesus that we celebrate this very morning. Verse 12 goes on to say, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, that is Jesus, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you've seen and heard. And now why do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name? We talked about this back in chapter nine when we saw Paul's conversion story the first time. 
three days without sight, three days without food or drink, complete darkness and emptiness at the absolute end of himself. And the first word he hears from Christian lips, brother Saul. Ananias knew that God had set apart the man standing before him, a new identity, a new family, no longer an enemy of God, but a son. If, that's, if you're a Christian, that's you too. Like Saul went from a religiously lost blind man groping in the darkness for something to hope in, ultimately his own reputation to great extent, to a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a message of self-sufficiency. It's a message of spiritual blindness apart from the radiant light of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, my prayer is that you, you would see the credentials of the apostle Paul and you would go, he's a far better man than me if he couldn't claw his way into the presence and an eternal kingdom of God, neither can I. I'm hopeless on my own merit, on my own resume. My prayer, if you're not a Christian, is that God would declare in this very moment to your heart, let there be light, like the Apostle Paul, and light, and like light in the creation story, 2 Corinthians 4, the eyes of your heart would go, you got it. Like, what else can I do in response to the mighty voice of God? I will now see and savor Jesus Christ. Your very own Damascus Road experience, you might say. Not only do these verses speak of Paul's conversion, but also his commissioning as a minister of the gospel. Paul declares the, the legitimacy of his calling by emphasizing the reputation of Ananias. He says, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. But Paul declares that a well-known a uh, very reputable Jewish man had no problem with the, the legitimacy of his conversion, declaring that Paul would become a witness for the very Jesus that he had so diligently persecuted, that he would enter the very same synagogues that he had planned to enter, now preaching the gospel to those that he originally intended to drag by the hair back to the city of Jerusalem in persecution, that, that he would take up the very ministry of Stephen, whose martyrdom he had once approved of. Amazing what the gospel does. Which leads us to verse 17. Paul says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, this is after his conversion, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, that is Jesus, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Jesus, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul's standing before a predominantly Jewish crowd, and he tells them of this vision that he received in the temple after his conversion, a vision he received on the very sacred ground that his accusers now stand an encounter like Isaiah with the enthroned Jesus, the calling on his life like Isaiah to be an ambassador of this Jesus, the promise like Isaiah of Israel's rejection of his ministry. You begin to see why these would be the last words the apostle Paul would get out of his mouth. Verse 22 tells us, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. That's strong, right? Not just out of our city, like away from the earth with this man. 
He should not be allowed to live. Again, likely in the very same location that Paul now finds himself, Pilate had asked the angry crowd, what shall we do with this Jesus? To which the same crowd that just days before had shouted, Hosanna in the highest, responded to Pilate, away with this man, crucify him. Such a fellow should be done away with from the earth, Jesus Christ. He shouldn't be allowed to live. Similarly, where the Jewish people had once cried, great is Paul among the Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee zealous for the law. They now cry away with him, demanding his death. Verse 23 tells us, and as they were shouting, throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, we've seen this before in the book of Acts, people hostile toward the gospel, acting erratically. It says, verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. The the tribune's job in part was simply to keep the peace, to, to keep riots from ensuing, which he's clearly failing at at this point. And so he decides he's gonna get some answers one way or another, in this case, by torturing Paul, like some Jack Bauer wannabe, And so verse 25 tells us, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, just like Jesus, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. He's talking about himself there. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Paul once again is presented with a question. This time, not are you an Egyptian freedom fighter, but rather are you a Roman citizen to which he responds with this emphatic, yes, I am. His clarifying of of his identity as a Jew of Tarsus opened the door for him to share the gospel with this predominantly Jewish crowd. His clarifying of his identity as a Roman citizen here allows him to live to share the gospel another day. We'll get back to this identity thing in just a moment. But for now, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So now you have this impromptu meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, you might say, on religious matters, called together by the tribune in an effort to get some answers, being that he can't beat the answers out of the Apostle Paul since he's a citizen of Rome. And so we're told, chapter 23, verse 1, looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is gonna strike you, you whitewashed wall. Um, We'll talk about that in just a second. Are, Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. There's some things that we do know about these verses and some things that we just don't know. We, We do know that the high priest was not only out of line, but unlawful. Jewish law said, he who strikes the cheek of an Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. 
It also says, he that strikes a man strikes the holy one. We, we don't know whether or not the apostle Paul was out of line. We, we know that he uses similar language to what we see Jesus use in the gospel accounts, right? Calling Ananias a whitewashed wall. Very famous passage of scripture. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When, when Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, that word essentially means pretenders play actors, theater actors. He was saying, essentially, you're playing house with God. You're, you're dressing the part of a righteous person, but you're not. Similarly, Paul essentially calls out Ananias for his hypocrisy, a man worthy of his own condemnation, bringing condemnation upon the apostle Paul. And yet some argue that Paul seems to do so in a, in a very unrestrained sort of way. Unlike Jesus, who first Peter Chapter two, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, Jesus, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Maybe Paul was in the right. Maybe with his imperfect vision, as many would argue, was the case for Paul. He couldn't see the high priest. Maybe he didn't know that Ananias was the high priest since he hadn't been in Jerusalem in quite some time. Maybe his view of the high priest was obstructed based on where he was located in the assembly. Maybe he was sincere in his apology, genuinely meaning no harm. But, but here's the, the deal. Going back to a couple weeks ago, we talked about this. It really doesn't matter at the end of the day. We saw back in chapter 21, the Bible is not afraid to show the imperfections of Jesus's followers because there's only one perfect sinless hero in all of scripture and his name is Jesus Christ. Isn't that encouraging? Not just when we look at the Apostle Paul and all the, the shoulders of the giants on whom we stand as people of the faith, but our very own lives. That we exist not to communicate a perfectionism about ourselves, but to point to a perfect savior who died for imperfect sinners like you and me. It goes on to say in verse six of chapter 23, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no res resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Verse nine, then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. This is, uh, this is not the first time we've encountered the Sadducees in the book of Acts. Sadducees, uh, if you weren't around when we talked about them before, they were the ruling class of wealthy aristocrats. They enjoyed some of the most privileged positions in society. Politically speaking, they got along pretty well with the Romans. Um, they didn't like anyone rocking the boat, which is exactly what's happening here. Theologically speaking, they were first century liberals. 
They didn't believe in supernatural things like angels or the resurrection of the dead, the very doctrine that Paul is unashamedly proclaiming here in the public square. That simply by mentioning the idea of resurrection of the dead, the fundamentalists, the Pharisees, and the liberals, the Sadducees, end up fighting with each other. And Paul lives to fight another day. Some, some of the Pharisees going so far as to even defend the apostle Paul, the very one that they were persecuting just a moment prior. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Though, though Paul's life is spared in, in this moment, he does get to live to, to fight another day, to share the gospel, to preach the gospel another day. This experience undoubtedly had to have left him incredibly disheartened and discouraged. Going back to a couple weeks ago, um, we talked about this. Paul deeply loved the Jewish people. He would have given up his own salvation if it meant his people might be saved. Roman, Romans 9 tells us that. He desperately wanted unity between Jewish and Gentile believers. Ephesians 2 tells us that. Here in this moment, think about this. Paul's hopes of seeing his Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem come to Christ are shattered. Think about your own loved ones. Think about friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, people in, in your life that, that you hope desperately come to know Jesus. Think about experiencing that moment when hope is lost and you see that it, it's not gonna come to fruition. Paul has something similar of, of an experience here, which helps to make sense of verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What, what we see here is very similar to what we saw back in chapter 18, where Jesus met the apostle Paul right in the midst of his discouragement and fear, an encounter that gave Paul the strength that he needed to press on. I never would have thought when we started this series through the book of Acts, if you'd asked me, what do you think is gonna be the most impactful passage of scripture, episode, literary unit that you'll walk away having said, thank you God for the most? I, ne I never would have said Acts chapters 18 and here chapter 23. I, I would have told you, I don't know, uh, day of Pentecost chapter two, or um, you know, maybe uh, chapter two, the fellowship of all believers, where we get this kind of window into the, the utopian gathering of the church, the assembly of God's people, or you know, maybe chapter seven, where we see the first post-resurrection Christian martyr. That's inspiring, the story of Stephen, or maybe the Apostle Paul's conversion in chapter nine. I don't know, maybe uh, Cornelius coming to faith and, and Peter's vision as the gospel expands out to the Gentiles in chapter 10. May, maybe some of the stories associated with Paul's missionary journeys, um, like uh, Paul proclaiming the gospel in Athens in chapter 17 or the riot in Ephesus in chapter 19. Maybe the Jerusalem council in chapter 15 where the gospel was at stake and, and the church walked away clarifying their position. We're not walking away from the gospel. I could have given you a number of possibilities there. I don't think I would have ever thought that I would go to Acts chapter 18 verses nine and 10 or Acts chapter 23 verse 11. These passages, are, passages are, are incredibly significant because it's a declaration that the risen Jesus is with us, that the doctrine of the resurrection is not simply 
a doctrine. It's a person, Jesus Christ. And he meets with his people in their moments and times of greatest need. Here we're told that Jesus stood by Paul. Could there possibly be anything more encouraging for a Christian than to know Jesus stands by you? It's unbelievable. Another way of communicating what Jesus said to Paul back in chapter 18, I am with you. Paul's faith must have been fortified by each and every one of these encounters with Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended high priest of heaven, the exalted and enthroned king of kings. It's who he is. It's who we're singing to. It's who we're we're proclaiming as we open the scriptures. It's who we'll celebrate and remember as we receive communion just moments from now. And here we see him present with his suffering ambassador, just like he's present in each and every one of our lives. You might go, all right, what are the takeaways? And we've, we've alluded to some of those already. You know, what, what's the so what? What does the public mocking and trial of a first century ambassador of Jesus have to do with you and me? It'd be very easy to read through the final chapters of the book of Acts and, and miss some very significant theology in the midst of the telling of the history. Right? The, the, the last chapters get a little clunky. You have to read a significant amount of scripture just to get one episode down. And we're gonna do that over the next several weeks. If you came to Secret Church, David Platt said, yep, well, it's not gonna be anything to that degree, but we are gonna get into some thicker, meatier, lengthier passages. It's gonna make your community groups a little bit more of a challenge when you gather together to talk through questions. But there's some significant things for us to take away from these passages in these latter chapters of the book of Acts. And all, by the way, tying back into last Sunday's Easter message. Number one, the resurrection matters all day, every day. The, the Apostle Paul makes that crystal clear, both with his words and his actions. On the one hand, with his words, he can't stop speaking of the resurrection, even on days that aren't Easter. Hey, he tells of his encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He tells of his encounter with the risen Jesus in the Jerusalem temple. And he declares that it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that he's on trial. Like Paul, Paul can't help but speak of the empty tomb, the risen Jesus. And, and this risen Jesus informs the way he lives his very life. Coming back to last week's look at 1 Corinthians 15, believing that his preaching is not in vain because Jesus Christ has been raised and thus he's happy to preach this risen Jesus wherever he goes. Believing that his faith is not worthless because Christ has been raised and thus he can rest in Christ in moments of fear and doubt. Believing that he's no longer in his sins because Christ has been raised and thus he can take the accusations of the crowd on the chin because the righteousness of Jesus is his and he knows it. Believing that the stinger has even been taken out of death because Christ has been raised and thus he can stare death in the face with confident humility. Christian, your worldview matters in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life. The resurrection had moment by moment significance for the apostle Paul. Do we view the resurrection that way? Or, or is it the fine china in our worldview? Is the risen Jesus part of our everyday language? Does the risen Jesus inform our everyday decisions? Whether we align our lives with the truth of it or not, the resurrection matters all day, every day. Secondly, the greatest identity for a human being 
made in the image of God is that of union with the risen Jesus. This one's, this one's a little bit more subtle in this morning's passage. There, there's, a, there's a literary device, Mark uses it a lot in his gospel account, known as the sandwich technique, where you have two similar accounts kind of functioning as the bread, so to speak, pointing to something significant in between those two accounts, the meat, you might say. In the case of this morning's passage, Paul is asked a question on two different occasions having to do with his identity. The first being, coming back to chapter 21, verses 38 and 39, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? To which Paul replied, no, I'm not that guy. I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. That's the first of the pieces of bread, you might say. The second being chapter 22, verses 27 and 28. Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? To which Paul replied, yes, I am a citizen by birth. Those two Q and A's regarding the apostle Paul's identity are the bread, the meat. Notice what's sandwiched between those two moments, those two questions and answers. It's the apostle Paul's conversion story. We're told of his newfound identity in Jesus Christ, that far superior to his identity as a Jew from Tarsus, far superior to his identity as a citizen of Rome, those, those things are not insignificant, is his identity, his newfound identity in Jesus Christ. Coming back to Philippians chapter three, what we read earlier, where Paul would say, verses four through six, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Notice all these identity markers. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, identity marker. Of the people of Israel, identity marker. Of the tribe of Benjamin, identity marker. A Hebrew of Hebrews, identity marker. As to the law, a Pharisee, identity marker. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, identity marker. As to the righteousness under the law, blameless, identity marker. Yet, what does he go on to say in Philippians chapter three, the very next two verses? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And that includes all of those identity markers. Compared to union with an identity in Christ, all of those other identity markers are rubbish. We, we all come in here this morning with various identity markers of our own, right? I'm an engineer or a pilot, or stay-at-home mom or a teacher. I'm a husband or a wife. I'm a mother of two. I'm a father of three we have all of these identity markers that, that we bring into this space. And, and when they're threatened, oftentimes we claw tooth and nail to make sure that they're brought back intact because we're so wrapped up in and ingrained in those identity markers. Notice what the apostle Paul does with his identity markers, subservient to his identity in Christ. He leverages both of them that we see in this morning's passage for the sake of the gospel, Right? He leverages his Jewishness in order to get the, the chance to speak to a predominantly Jewish crowd about his collision with Jesus so that his Jewish brothers and sisters might know the joy of an identity in Christ. 
And he leverages his Romanness to live to see another day so that he might tell people as far as Rome, including kings and queens, about identity found in Christ, not in kingship or queenship. Rather, you can be a citizen of the true king. What do we bring into this place this morning? Is your identity ultimately in Christ? If you're not a Christian, I pray that you would wrestle with the first part of that passage in Philippians 3, that you would look at the Apostle Paul and you would go, that's a, that's a moral giant. That's a man who was getting it done as it pertains to the commands of God. And yet he found himself falling short of God's glory when all was said and done. He found himself desperate to cling to Jesus Christ and his righteousness to, to, to receive the forgiveness of sins that comes in uniting with Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, declaring Jesus took my sins in his body on the tree. He's given me his perfect righteousness. That's my identity. And every other identity is subservient to that identity and for the leveraging of that identity and the spread of the gospel so that more people might be brought into that identity of union with him. Number three, lastly, I love this one. Jesus stands by those who belong to him. Another way we could say it, Jesus stands by those who stand for him. Jesus intercedes for those who are in him, united to him by faith. If you're a Christian, that should be incredibly good news to you this morning. Hey, he stood by the apostle Paul in the midst of his great discouragement and fear. Again, the resurrection matters. The fact that Jesus is alive means that he's able to meet with us in the midst of our discouragement, in the midst of our fear, able to give us strength to press on. Hear me, Christian, the risen Jesus stands by you now. I will never leave you nor forsake you, to use the language of Hebrews. He's the risen and ascended high priest of heaven. He's the exalted and enthroned king of kings. His resurrection matters just as much today as it did last Sunday as we celebrated Easter. The question is, will we look to the risen Jesus today for our ultimate source of identity? Will we look to the risen Jesus today for encouragement in the midst of present disheartenment and fear? Because he's here. He's present with us by his spirit.